0: The possibility here is that DeepMind solves for this and licenses this capability or open sources it for the rest of the industry. So that's what they're trying to do. And what I assume they're at least in talks with is you need universal standards for this. And they had a breakthrough in the technology that could allow other image generation companies to very quickly follow on and have the same standard. Welcome to episode 62 of the Marketing AI show. I am your host, Paul Raitzer, along with my probably exhausted co-host, Mike <laughs> but You did how many webinars this week, Mike? Three webinars
1: this week, and we had one the previous week too. So Jeez. we had what we're calling uh, tentatively kind of internally industry week, where we had the release of AI for manufacturing marketing blueprint. So we're doing blueprint assets with select partners so we did one for manufacturing the AI for financial services marketing blueprint and then AI for higher education so we did three webinars back to back to back got a ton of amazing attendees and engagement which is cool but yeah it's a bit of a there's a lot of public speaking over the last few days but The cool thing is they are also on demand for posterity here. So if you're interested in checking out one of those, definitely go to marketingaiinstitute.com, click on resources, and under webinars, they are all there. So my hard work over this last week is now on demand. I have not really heard from or seen Mike or Kathy for the last three days.
0: (laughs) And then Mike was building decks before that. So yeah, yeah, Yeah. good stuff. I mean, we had a ton of amazing (laughs) feedback and thanks to our sponsors, Quant Plus and Drift on those. Um, Yeah, good stuff. So if you're in financial services, uh, manufacturing or higher ed, go grab those free resources. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by AI Academy. Uh, So the Piloting AI series in particular, which we've talked about before, I think we have over 600 people have taken this course now this series of courses. So we built this in December of 2022. Mike and I put this together and launched it. So post chat GPT as a step-by-step learning journey for marketers to guide them through adopting AI, to advance their companies and careers. There's 17 on-demand courses, uh, dozens of AI use cases and technologies, collection of templates, frameworks, and it's all available. It's about eight hours of learning. You speed it up to 1.25, 1.5. You can get it done faster, but basically you can do it all in a day. Uh, This is about a decade of research that we put into building this series. So it's been extremely well-received. It's kind of when we teach our intro to AI class, everyone always says like, what's next? This is the series we built. Uh, So you can go to pilotingai.com to learn more and use AI pod 50. We'll get you $50 off the registration for that. So again, pilotingai.com, and you can learn more about that series. All right, we are recording this on Friday, September 1st. We're doing it a little early due to the Labor Day holiday on Monday. And so we were thinking we could either go Wednesday or let's just get it done on time. So this is coming out as usual on our Tuesday slot, uh, but we are recording on Friday. So if something happens on Friday and it's not in here, now you know why we didn't include it. Uh, But we got plenty to cover without waiting until Monday as our usual recording date. All right, Mike, let's get going on our main topic.
1: All right, so first up is that OpenAI just announced that they're launching ChatGPT Enterprise. Now, this is a version of ChatGPT that has enterprise-grade security and privacy, unlimited higher-speed GPT-4 access, longer context windows, advanced data analysis capabilities, customization options, and much more. So this move appears to be a response to enterprise demand for a safe compliant version of ChatGPT. OpenAI actually said in the announcement of ChatGPT Enterprise, they said, "Quote, since ChatGPT's launch just 9 months ago, we've seen teams adopt it in over 80% of Fortune 500 companies, and we've heard from business leaders that they'd like a simple and safe way of deploying it in their organization." So now it looks like they're getting just that, so Paul, I want to kick things off by just straight up asking about the elephant in the room. Did OpenAI AI just make a bunch of third party tools that are targeting the enterprise market specifically obsolete yeah, that was my first
0: thought, and you know we've known this is coming. They talked about this a few months back that there would be a business version. It's the obvious thing um related to you know, Microsoft Copilot on its way to come out. We're gonna talk about Duet AI from Google in a minute. So we knew these big players were going to build enterprise offerings. The question just becomes moving forward, do, do you need these other third-party applications that are doing similar things? Um, I, I don't know that we can answer that question yet. You know, we're talking with a lot of enterprises that are looking at all their options. And at the moment, no one knows if you can make a single bet on one company because you have some of these third-party software companies that are building more enterprise-specific capabilities. So all this stuff is great. The security, the context window, the code interpreter now known as advanced data analysis. They keep struggling to name this thing something <laughs> that's relevant. I don't know. The naming conventions are questionable, but the capabilities are not. So you're going to have that code interpreter data analysis capability baked right in. And they teased more advanced version of that is coming, which is going to be crazy. But they're not building in yet like template libraries and the ability to segment by teams and the ability to, you know, build in by persona, although they they did tease roles and functions are coming. So data analysts, hmm. marketers, customer support, um, uh, style guides, things like that that some of these other players are, it's not HIPAA compliant. So if you're looking at healthcare, they're not HIPAA compliant yet. So if you're in the healthcare space, you probably can't just rely on this one. So enterprise purchasing is, is complex. There's lots of decisions that go in or variables that go into making decisions. So I don't think we can just say, and I am sure there's been headlines like, oh, it's a third party app killer or whatever. It's not yet. Um, so I think that what you're going to do is see a lot of trials, a lot of experimentation, trying to figure out what is it actually capable of and does it eventually limit the need for multiple tools that do this. But I mean, we're giving guidance right now that you just need to experiment. Like we can't confidently say, yep, you're, you don't need all those other tools now. It's just Chad Enterprise it's going to solve everything. Yeah. But it's becoming more cloudy. You have Chad GPT Enterprise. We're going to talk about Google Workspace. You have Grammarly Go, you have Jasper, you have Writer, you have the third, you have the direct with the foundation models, go build with Cohere, go build with the Anthropic. Like it's getting really, really complicated. And I don't know anyone that actually has the answers because I I don't know that they're there yet. I, I do think the path currently is to uh have strategies in your company to have teams who are experimenting with all of these advancements and have multiple uh, vendors that they're testing for different use cases that are most relevant to your company. And then we're going to have to see over the next few months how this all plays out.
1: Did any features specifically mentioned as part of ChatGPT Enterprise stand out to you as particularly important either for ChatGPT specifically or overall for enterprise-grade
0: tools? Well the enterprise side in particular is that they're not going to train on your business data or conversations and the models won't learn from your usage. That's a huge issue for enterprises to get this through procurement, to get it mm-hmm. through security, you know, cybersecurity and IT and so that that's just an essential step. Um I've seen some people like, yeah, I don't really trust them. But there's going to be that uh like are they really not? Um but I think that was a big issue that they had to resolve. Uh, it's faster, unlimited GPT 4 use is a huge deal. If you're, if you're scaling this in an enterprise, you can't be hitting caps every, you know, Mm. six hours during the day, the context window. I think it means up to about 25,000 words in each prompt. So that's huge in terms of its capabilities. And then again, I think the code interpreter formerly known as code interpreter, now known as advanced data analysis, um, that to me is probably one of the great unlocks. That most companies aren't even really thinking about yet. I think it can be a very disruptive technology once companies learn how to use it properly, and especially once the next version of it comes out. Um, so that that definitely jumped out at me. And then they did tease a self serve version for smaller teams because I have no idea if we even qualify. Like they don't have pricing on the site about it. You can only go in and request access, which I did for Market Institute. But I've I assume that we're not going to get it anytime soon. I, mm-hmm. I, I assume they're prioritizing for like a thousand plus person company or something like that. So I, I don't I have no idea if we'll get it uh, or if we're going to have to wait around for the business for smaller teams version. They, they're pretty, um,
1: they, they're not sharing those details right now. So you mentioned a bit about some of the considerations enterprises might have adopting this type of tool, do you have any predictions about where this is going a little beyond the short term? I mean, it does seem like OpenAI has a huge advantage in the fact that simply everyone knows about and has used ChatGPT over other perhaps less accessible or well-known platforms. Like, Where do you see this going? Uh,
0: so if I was open AI, I would buy one of the third party applications and I would build the killer AI writing app. Like mm. they're, they're going to like right now they're playing nice with these third party tools and they're letting them have access to their APIs and open AI to date probably isn't built to commercialize products. Like they, you know, this is all new to them. ChatGPT sort of threw them into this world of building enterprise software. Go buy somebody who knows how to build enterprise software, just build it. Like if they do that, it, now we're talking about like a total shift in the tech landscape here hmm. because there's nothing stopping them from from doing that and if you can just go buy a team that already has built an enterprise platform enterprise user interface understands the enterprise um if they chose to they they could take over this market i I think I mean they obviously have the technology for it it would appear they're just lacking that kind of go to market strategy of building the software and the user interface, and then having the team behind it. I will say I was, there was like this moment yesterday. So I lost access, like many people, to my chat GPT plus account yesterday. I went to log in yesterday morning. Uh, this what, so it was on Thursday, August 31st, and it was just gone. ChatGP, mm. My chat history was gone. My account was gone. And I was like, did, did me applying for enterprise, like reset my account somehow? Like what is going on? So I put it on Twitter and I tagged uh, Logan, the guy that, you know, we've talked about uh, OpenAI, I don't remember Logan's last name, but he's really active on uh, Twitter, shares a lot of stuff at OpenAI. And so I tagged him, I was like, this is a known issue. And he responded right away. He's like, yeah, I got the same issue right now. So it was like, obviously widespread. And I had actually gone into their customer support, the question uh, in my account in ChatGPT and like interface with them in a chat. And it was like kind of a push button, like what's your issue billing account, whatever. So it wasn't like a true interface with GPT-4 or anything. But despite the fact that I'm sure they were getting flooded, someone actually responded to me within like 20 minutes. Mm. And I was like, well, this is interesting. They have a customer support, like movement at, at OpenAI. So it just started like that thought in my mind of, wow, if they wanted to build like a really impressive customer support engine, an onboarding engine, a uh, partner program, and and like acquire or build like an enterprise software play, mm. it could be trouble for for the ecosystem for the you know the other players in the in the market because I don't know that Google and Microsoft are going to do that like that's the they haven't shown that ability yet I don't think so if OpenAI wanted to be the go to like SaaS play here they could probably do it pretty
1: quickly and they got the money to do it. So speaking of Google, another big topic going on this week is that Google just made some pretty significant AI announcements as part of its Google Cloud Next 23 event that took place over the last few days. The event was headlined by Google's announcements that Duet AI for Workspace, its generative AI tool in Gmail, Docs, Sheets, Slides, Chat, and Meet, is now generally available and has a no-cost trial. So as part of the event, Google also announced new models in Vertex AI. Vertex AI is their suite of APIs that basically allow you to access a bunch of different foundational models. So now using Vertex AI, you can now access Llama 2 and Code Llama, both from Meta and Claude 2 from Anthropic Access is coming soon. Now, as also as part of these updates, they debuted some new digital watermarking functionality for ImageN, Google's image generation technology. Now, this is actually interestingly powered by Google DeepMind, by something called SynthID. And it basically could give us a preview of how we'll be able potentially to accurately identify AI-generated images and text in the future. So some big updates here, but let's start with Duet AI for Workspace. What features of this stood out to you and what should marketers and business leaders be paying attention to here? I think it was last
0: week we talked about that I had just gotten access to the Duet AI on my personal Gmail and we didn't know when this was coming. Yep. And we I hadn't thought to look out at the Google Next conference coming a few days later and assume it was going to happen. But the the thing that, you know, again, we've talked about this many times, but you have it in Gmail, you have it in Docs, you have it in Sheets, you have it in Slides meeting. like It's it's going to be everywhere. Um, I will say for the workspace admins out there real quick, I went to add this because you could go in and request a free trial when they announced it. It's like you can go in and get the trial. So I did that and I got an email saying, great, here you go. Like if you're an admin, just go add it in your account. And so I was playing around this morning trying to figure out well, how, do, how the heck do you actually do it? So this is a quick tip for the Google workspace admins out there. What you need to do, because it is not obvious, is go to your admin account, click on Billing, and we'll put this flow in the show notes, click on Upgrade, and then click on Google Workspace add-ons. So that's how you actually then get the Duet AI. Once you get there, you pick Start Trial of Duet AI. And this is what it's going to do is, once it's turned on, it will be on by default. And every user will have it on and they won't be able to turn it off. So it will be a, a, like a, a constant feature for them in Gmail, Docs, everything. So once you do that, the, the pricing is there's a trial plan for 14 days. There's a flexible plan, which is $36 per user per month, if you want to pay monthly. Or there's an annual plan that is $30 per user per month. So that's that's what we're looking at, which is what the pricing that we've heard about Copilot from Microsoft was going to be, $30 per user per month. So I'm guessing it's all the same, which maybe alludes to what ChatGPT enterprise pricing would look like. I can't imagine they're going to have something totally disproportionate to this. Mm. So that gives us a sense of kind of where the pricing is falling. Um, so for me, the I mean, we haven't seen yet how good it is in Gmail and how good it is in docs. Those are the two most obvious uses right up front for everybody because every business sends email and creates documents. It does get us back to this issue of like, your people need to be trained on this though. So like, we're going to just turn these features on. And now in our organization, it's a small team and everyone obviously is involved in AI and understands this stuff. So we don't have too many concerns about it. But if you're an admin and you turn this on and all of a sudden like accounting and finance and legal mm. and HR and everybody else has access to these tools and they have no idea what the heck they are. So I would advise like, if you're the admin and you're going to go turn this on and you have a company of 20, 30, 50 people, and they're all going to come to work on Tuesday after labor day. And like, they're going to have this help me write button. I'm going to know what the heck to do with it. So that, that's just kind of like more of like a admin guidance. So give you a quick rundown. So the way this is going to work is in Gmail, there is a help me write button. The the functionality will be, it can write your draft for you. It can formalize a draft. So change the tone. It can elaborate on your draft. So it can add further detail to your email to build it. It can shorten your draft. So decrease the length of the email, or there's an I'm feeling lucky option, which is introduce fun variations on tone and style for content you've drafted. So as a Google Workspace user, you will have that in both your mobile and your desktop app. In the Docs version, the Help Me Write button will again write it for you. Um, You can do tone. You can do summarization. So you can generate a summary of the entire doc. You can bulletize. Is that a word? That's what they use, bulletize. It is now. It is. I I kind (laughs) of like that word, actually. So as you would assume, it means use bullets to represent your text. You can elaborate, so you can add further detail to build on generated text. You can shorten, you can retry, which is have it generate another draft, or you can customize it with your own instructions. So again, think of all of those individual use cases. You have to teach your team what these are. So what I would be doing right now, and maybe we should be doing this too, is like assign someone who is going to be the lead person testing all this capability over the next two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is and have a plan of how to integrate this stuff into your workflows and to guide people. Just turning these tools on is mm-hmm. not going to get you full value from them. You, you have to go through and experiment with what they're going to be capable of. And then again, going back to Mike's original question, does this obsolete these third-party AI writing tools we are using? We have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like Until you take, well, here's the five ways we're using a third-party writing tool right now. And now that we have Workspace, does it solve for those same use cases is it complementary or is it redundant that's the question you're going to have to ask but you're going to have
1: to do it at a use case level that's really interesting yeah i think that idea of assigning someone to figure this out over the next few weeks is a really smart one i mean there's so many ways that to your point about turning it on There's so many ways it could go wrong as well. I mean, there's just people just need a baseline of education, understanding what's even possible with some of these features.
0: Well, I think for you and I, Mike, like we have, we deal with AI savvy people all the time. So they're like geeked about this. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of companies who are going to turn this on for people who know nothing about AI and don't want to know anything about (laughs) AI. Like it's, I retweeted something from Allie Miller yesterday about like the thing that no one's talking about is the the change management required to push technology like this into a system that changes like a paradigm shift Mm. in talent and in workflows, processes. That's the thing that not enough companies are even talking about right now, more or less solving for. And we've we've seen it. We've talked to a lot of big companies where they're starting to think about it, but it's often happening in the marketing department. The change management isn't being envisioned in all the other functions within the business. And that That to me is like the thing that needs to be a priority in the second half of 2023, because as we talk about this, tech's only going to get faster. Microsoft's going to come out with their version. We're going to, we'll talk about Google Meet in a second, but like this tech is just going to be everywhere all of a sudden. And if, if you haven't talked about that with your team and put planning in place and training in place, then it's, it's not going to go well.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned, well, maybe walk me through a bit about Google Meet here that, because I know you had called that out as pretty interesting as well as part of some of these updates.
0: Yeah. So there was a, there was a section in their launch that I I put on LinkedIn. It said, to help you better engage during meetings, we're removing the burden of note-taking and sending out recaps, which cool on its surface. Duet AI can capture notes, action items, and video snippets. That's a new, I hadn't heard of like, capturing video snippets and doing it almost like video shorts that are automated. That's kind of cool. Uh, in real time with the new take notes for me feature, and it will send a summary to attendees after the meeting. It can even help get latecomers up to speed with summary so far, uh, is in quotes, which gives us a quick snapshot of everything they've missed. But what if you can't make the meeting? This is the one where I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, (laughs) what if you can't make the meeting and have some input to share, with, quote, attend for me, Duet AI will be able to join the meeting on your behalf, delivering your message and ensuring you get the recap. Huh. I'm sorry, Mike. If your <laughs> attend for me shows up for a one-on-one you and I have, yeah. and it just yeah. tells me what you wanted to say, it's, we may have some issues.
1: So, Yeah, no again, kidding.
0: <laughs> this goes to the change management function. Like, what if executives just start throwing their attend for me duet AI into meetings with like employees and they think it's fun and cool. And their employees are like insulted that their mm-hmm. leaders aren't <laughs> taking <laughs> the time to talk to them. Like, again, nobody is prepared for this from an organizational perf- perspective, from a culture perspective. So the tech is going to be here. It's here. And like, what the hell do we do with this? So I, that was to me that jumped out. It's like, oh my God, like, I don't even know about the video snippets and the attend mm-hmm. for me thing. Um, I still don't like when people's note taker shows up, like you're on zoom and you see somebody's like note takers there. It's like, I didn't give permission to like send your note taker. Like, what are you doing? And people just like by default. So I could totally see people just like throwing their attend for me in there. And it's like, what is going on? Mm. So I don't know. I think the dynamics of virtual meetings seem like they're just about to change because I know teams is doing a lot of these same things because Microsoft showed a lot of these functions in their demo video a few months back. And there's no way Zoom
1: doesn't build this stuff in. So right. meetings are just
0: gonna change and nobody's talking
1: about it. And we're all so good at regulating meetings as it is, right? So it's like <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get flooded with some of this stuff. So let's talk about a couple more quick updates they announced. Uh first up, what is the significance of the updates around vertex AI and this ability to access some more. Top foundational models using Vertex AI.
0: So honestly, when I saw Vertex AI in the announcement, I was like, "What is that?" Like, I know I've heard of it. I feel yeah. like I should know it, but I don't actually know what the heck Vertex AI is. They're just like, "Now we have Duet AI, we have Vertex AI." So I had to dig in for a second, and it is their their system that provides APIs to leading foundational models. So that, the so you can like kind of prototype and um, build things on top of these models. So the 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 equivalent that I assume we're looking at is kind of how we talked about AWS bedrock or Amazon mm. bedrock where yeah. you can go in and you can get their Titan model or you can get Claude or you can get oh here I think is in there so basically like an everything store for models so I think what Google's doing here is saying hey listen you might not use our language models and that's okay we just want you to pay us for the compute like we want mm. your data in our Google cloud and so if you want to use Llama or Code Llama, or Claude2, or Falcon, or like whatever language model you want to use, just keep the data in Google Cloud, basically. Yeah. So I, I, it seems like that's what Vertex AI is. So this is gotcha. probably more of like the tech data conversation, um, that audience, but just know that everyone is basically understanding that people are going to pick and choose their models. And AWS, Microsoft, and Google want your data in their clouds because that's where
1: they make all their money. So, what about this synth ID thing? This ability to potentially watermark AI-generated images and text—are we close to finally solving this? I don't think so. Like DeepMind's talked about this,
0: and again, just quick recap: so DeepMind is the main AI research lab within Google. It was originally an independent AI research company acquired by Google. Google Brain and Google DeepMind f- merged about what three, four months ago to make Google DeepMind. Demis Hassabis, who we've talked about a bunch of times, is mm. the CEO of DeepMind and leads AI at Google. So DeepMind has been working on Sith ID, which we've uh, image gen is, was introduced by Google in like April of 2022. It does what Dolly 2 does, Midjourney does like give it a prompt that generates text or generates an image. Um, it was never publicly released. You can only get access to it through their API to build with it. And it's now going to be infused into like Google Slides, I think, where you can build images within slides with prompts. But what they've done is they've created a way to watermark outputs from ImageGen only. This does not work for Dolly or MidJourney or any other things. So it's only an ImageGen functionality and it, it stays there even if the images are cropped and edited out. So it, it basically is a true watermark within image Gen images. So they'll be able to use it to identify ones that were built by Google. The, the, the possibility here is that DeepMind solves for this and licenses this capability or open sources it for the rest of the industry to solve okay. for image. So that's what they're trying to do. And what I assume they're at least in talks with is you need universal standards for this. And they had a breakthrough in the technology that could allow other image generation companies to very quickly follow on and have the same standard. So that's, that's my assumption of why we should pay attention to this is not because yeah. image gen widely popular yet, yet. It's that this could be a prelude to the rest of the industry following
1: on. Gotcha. So our third big topic today is that OpenAI has finally broken its silence after being sued by a number of different authors. All these authors allege that ChatGPT was illegally trained on their work without their permission. OpenAI is actually now looking to dismiss these lawsuits and they say, quote, the use of copyrighted materials by innovators in transformative ways does not violate copyright. Unlike, say, plagiarists who are seeking to directly profit off of distributing copyrighted materials, OpenAI is arguing that its goal is, quote, to teach its models to derive the rules underlying human language. And this is going to help people do things like Save time at work, make daily life easier, or simply entertain themselves by typing prompts into ChatGPT. Now, as part of this kind of public response to the lawsuits, OpenAI also cited a notable copyright case that involved Google Books, and they reminded the court that quote While an author may register a copyright in her book, the statistical information pertaining to word frequencies, syntactic patterns, and thematic markers in that book. Are beyond the scope of copyright protection. So that's a lot of, like a mouthful of a lot of legalese here. But really, what OpenAI seems to be saying is hey, you're concerned that we've broken all these copyright rules by training our models on your books, but actually, the model is not being used to uh, take revenue from you or profit off you in any way. It's essentially for the good of humanity and innovation. Now, Paul, can you kind of break down what's going on here? Do they have a case here at all?
0: I have no idea from a legal perspective. And like I've often said before, Mike and I are not attorneys. We um, I took a business law class in college. That's about the extent. I thought about being a lawyer for like, I don't know, a month of college. But that's that's literally it, other than the fact that I deal with IP attorneys all the time for my businesses and for our own IP needs. Um, and we are authors. So we have a kind of a stake in this right. from, from that perspective. Other than that, we are observers of this. And I will say that, like I posted this on LinkedIn and in in in, in the way we always do of just like conversation starter, we're not taking a stand. I have no idea what, the, what they'll eventually say in the courts. I do think this goes to the Supreme Court eventually, not maybe this case, but I think solving for this um, does eventually go to the highest courts. Um, but I, what often happens is we get uh, like really smart attorneys who come up in the comments and post stuff. So there was actually a lot of, there was a pretty active comment section. I had 42 comments on this one on LinkedIn and a number of them were attorneys. So I would say read their comments, read their perspective. But it seems that generally, um, we just don't know there. I think the key to this was that up till now, we made some assumptions that the Google books case would certainly be a part of their argument. Uh, But this is the first time we're actually seeing them put in print Mm -hmm. what their arguments are. And that in essence, they're saying like, you know, it doesn't, it's not plagiarism. We're not stealing anything. It's the statistics behind how words are formed. And Mm -hmm. this has been done before and there's nothing we're doing that's different. And the laws basically need to catch up to innovation in essence. So certainly some people are going to say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's fair use, like case closed. And other people are going to say, no, that's not, that's not how this works. And I, it's going to have to be litigated. Like, I, I just don't know how this gets solved. And they were trying to throw out all but one of the charges, I think, yeah. like they're, the, the fact that it was actually was a violation of copyright, they're trying to get all the other stuff out of it. So I, it's just going to be really intriguing to follow along. Um, but I just thought it was, it was fascinating to hear them state clearly why they thought what they were doing was okay. And I will say the other thing that keeps coming to mind here is so many times major breakthroughs in technology are borderline illegal when they're done. Mm-hmm. So you think about how Uber basically like took over the taxi industry. like they were basically illegal when they were doing it. What Tesla has done with self-driving in many cases could probably be argued as like illegal, like right? From right. how they advertise full self-driving um, to actually using that technology on the roads, like it. These, the technologists have to push the frontiers to get to where they're trying to go. And sometimes it's questionable whether it's legal or ethical to do it. And that's certainly what we're seeing here. Like you can listen to arguments on both sides. And at the end of the day, the courts are going to decide whether what they're doing or have done was legal or not. And, and then we'll see. Either they pay fines or they have to license things or they have to destroy the models. I, I've said before, I don't see it coming to that. Like I yeah. I don't think the innovation stops, but I think there's going to be some
1: bumps in the road for sure of some sort from a legal perspective. So obviously, we, you've mentioned we need to, these will need to be resolved in court, but I'm curious about what you think this means for people on the other end of this equation. I mean, obviously, several authors, publishers, et cetera, are pretty unhappy. I have to imagine seeing a response like this makes them even unhappier.
0: I don't know it didn't change my feelings on it, but I think we're too close to it to be really objective, yeah in that we understand both sides, and we're living this every day and we have a deep understanding of how the AI works. I think for the average author who maybe doesn't follow AI or is afraid of AI, it just reinforces their hatred for it and that yeah. they, they're convicted that that people are stealing it so i I sympathize with with that side for sure like i I don't have a strong like what is right and wrong here. I I think that it probably was a violation of historical copyright law in some way. And I think there's a chance that what copyright law looks like moving forward evolves and it's no longer uh, illegal. I I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the most likely outcome, but I'm not saying I think it should be one or the other. I'm saying I'm not educated enough in law to be a person to tell you what I think is right and wrong here. I, right. I just think that's what the judges are for. And that's what the courts are for is to solve for this. I think that the companies doing it are making ethical decisions right now about if what they're doing is in the gray area, do they really believe it's for the greater good? And, and they're going to push forward, even if it ends up being that they break some laws along the way. Seems to be what's happening right now.
1: All right, let's dive into some rapid fire topics and kind of related on the heels of these open AI lawsuits and responses beginning this past week on August 30th, the US Copyright Office has actually opened up public comment, a public comment period around AI and copyright issues. So the Copyright Office is soliciting people's perspectives on basically three big questions. How AI models should be used, should use copyrighted data when they're being trained, whether AI generated material can be copyrighted when a human isn't involved, and how copyright liability would or should work with AI. Now, the office is soliciting these written comments that are due by October 18th, and all replies must be submitted by November 15th. So, Paul, when you're looking at this, what did you make of the fact that they're opening up this public comment period around copyright and AI? Can we anticipate more action in the U.S. at least on this topic?
0: On March 16th, when the Copyright Office uh, updated their guidance on generative AI, they announced that they were going to do a number of listening sessions and they were going to be open to the public. So I don't think there's any surprise here. They have, at least from a PR perspective, taken... The right moves to hear people out, allowing the public to participate in what the future of copyright law looks like. So, I, again, I, I mean, just from an outside observer perspective, I think they're doing the right stuff. They held these sessions, they're hearing people out, they're allowing people to comment. Um, I, you know, I don't know where it goes from here, but I think it's the right move to involve people in the conversation, and, and maybe you learn something along the way that that evolves how you how you look at this from a legal perspective. So, yeah, it's good. I mean, I. I I haven't actually thought about like publicly, you know, creating comments or submitting Mm. anything to them, Um, but I will be really intrigued to find out. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot to look forward to this fall. It does seem like going to 2024, there's probably going to be movement one way or the other on this, and we'll start learning how the government looks at this.
1: So. As this is all happening with copyright and lawsuits, some companies are taking things into their own hands. So we talked about on a few episodes ago the fact that OpenAI has recently given people guidance on how to block your website from being crawled by GPT Bot, which is the crawler it uses to scan people's websites and use that content for training models. So we just found out that some major media companies have now blocked open AI from crawling their sites. And these include some pretty notable names here. So among a list of companies that have done this include the New York Times, CNN, Disney, Reuters, Bloomberg, The Washington Post, ESPN, and a bunch of others. Now, as we're looking at this, what do you think of these publishers doing this? What does this mean for the quality of the training data that OpenAI's models are able to access moving forward. I, I assume
0: it's primarily leverage to negotiate licensing deals. I don't, I don't think that long term they block this out. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Google's, you know, search experience, generative search experience in a minute, mm-hmm. and you know the future of search and how that all plays out. But these sites depend on traffic from the internet, so. I don't know. Like, I I think that it's largely that. But th- then there's other weird thought came to mind, which is like, we talked about Books 3 and the 170,000 pirated books, and they needed those books because, you know, if you if you just train these models on the internet, there's a lot of crappy content, a lot of mm-hmm. bad writing. Uh, so what you really need as examples is really good writing um, that's factual and, you know, follow specific styles. And that's what these media outlets have is good writing from humans. So that's great training data that can be heavier weighted in these models. So the question I started pondering, and I put this in one of the comments was like, in some twisted way, is it possible that the language model and tech companies don't save media by bringing their deep pockets to fund journalism? Hmm. So if, if these language model companies need great writing to train their models, wouldn't it be weird if. They realize, well, let's just fund the building of great media companies and let's fund journalism because we need great human writers to train our models continuously, not like one and done, build GPT-5, and then we don't need writers anymore. But what if, because the, the thing that str- the, the journalism industry, media industry, what they struggle with is they're ad supported. It's all driven by ad dollars. Yep. And so everything becomes clickbait because you got to get you know, the advertisers, you got to get the impressions up. And like, what if we could just reimagine what that industry is if it didn't have to do that? What if the money actually was there because the output was the ability to train better models? And so these tech companies, like for them to throw a billion at great writing to train great models doesn't seem like a big deal it's like how much advertising do you have to sell to do that? Mm-hmm. And so I just, I started thinking about like, I wonder if there's like some play here where these big tech companies start building their own real like media outlets and and journalists like funding journalism schools and Mm. like what if i don't know because journalism schools are struggling you you know i came out of journalism school you're a writer by trade like they're it's not in a good place because you don't know what the career path looks like but if you could actually fund it like i wonder if that would make a play like I, i don't know i mean i was just kind of like thinking out loud here but um Yeah, it could be really bad or it could end up being really good.
1: I'm not Mm. sure which which direction this goes. So in another piece of news this week, Google's AI powered search results, which are called search generative experience or SGE, is now these are now rolling out links to website within websites within these results. So if you get an AI powered search result, these are like conversational results to queries that you give Google, so similar to kind of how ChatGPT would respond if you asked for information, paragraphs of natural language text. Now, the links that will now be in these results are going to start appearing as down arrows within the results that you can click to reveal the website where the information came from and then navigate it to it if you choose. Does this feel like a sustainable way to you to kind of offer... The conversational search results while still preserving all the things we've talked about with a potential decline in organic web traffic or Google's ad revenue. Does this seem like a way forward for AI-powered search? It seems like something
0: worth experimenting with. You know, in the article, they talked about the different ways Google's tested this to see how people interact with it, what they click on, what they like about it. So kind of like focus group style and actually like just data-driven style. Um, my impression is we're going to find out pretty quickly. Like as this rolls out, I, you know, within two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, I think we're going to start to see whether or not organic traffic starts dropping. So, you know, in your Google analytics, Mark, August 30th as a milestone date and watch what happens to the organic traffic afterwards. So I think on future episodes, we'll be able to do some updates based on industry data of what's going on it does seem like they made a very, uh, aggressive effort to have the best of both worlds, the generative response and the links within and the links to the right. So I don't think Google is trying to like, uh, you know, throw away the, the traffic they're sending to all these brands and publishers. It seems like they're trying to solve it. And I think they're going to keep testing it and trying to figure out the best way to do it. But You know, it'll be worth watching your data moving forward now since this move's rolling out.
1: So on episode 60 of the podcast, we actually talked about AI's potential impact on schools. And it turns out that Louisiana State University, LSU, is one of the many schools that appear to be struggling to adapt to AI. So... According to a report in the Louisiana Illuminator, professors and administrators are trying to deal with AI's impact on the college. And specifically, LSU saw a 500% increase in reports of plagiarism after popular plagiarism software that they used released a function to detect if AI wrote an assignment. So, Paul, I think we've kind of predicted. Tensions and issues like this would happen um, as schools try to navigate artificial intelligence, specifically around detecting plagiarism and using AI detectors to see if AI actually wrote assignments. So let's set the record straight here. Can we rely on AI tools to consistently and reliably detect plagiarism?
0: No, I mean, the the, 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 well, one, I mean, it's not going to be plagiarism per se, because it's like a plagiarism checker can be pretty accurate. An Mm -hmm. AI writing detection tool is different and is Mm -hmm. not necessarily accurate. So as of now, there's no scientific evidence that these things are usable or relevant and they're not going to solve for it in the future because the AI will just keep finding ways to hide itself in essence. So to me, by, by, by relying on these tools, you're just challenging the cheaters to cheat better. (laughs) Like, I I really think that the only path forward for schools, and we're going to keep seeing, you know, case after case that supports this idea is uh, integration and education. Like, infuse the tools into your teaching, teach the teachers how to use them, teach the students how to use them in a responsible manner, and just be open about it. So if you're going to use it, show your prompts, but you also have to explain the critical thinking that went into doing it. You know, like you, you, there, there's just no other way forward in education, but to accept that these tools exist and to find ways to do it. And it's going to start with teaching the teachers what they are, how they work and how best to use them in the classroom. It, it's the only way forward. In my opinion, this is one of those things. Like I actually have a very strong opinion about this. and <laughs> yeah. um, I've been very consistent with that opinion. And and having talked with a lot of educators, a lot of uh, administrators, I'll, I'll tell them the same
1: thing every time. So, perhaps because there's so much confusion or uncertainty around AI in education, OpenAI has actually released a teaching with AI guide. And this is pretty short at the moment, but it offers some guidance from teachers on things like suggested prompts for AI tools, explanations of how the AI is actually working. And how some of these teachers are actually using it in the classroom. So when you saw these guidelines, Paul, did any jump out at you as particularly helpful or noteworthy? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I kept,
0: like, this was tweeted by Sam Altman, Greg Brockman. Yeah. uh, Their CTO, I forget her name at the moment. Um, Like, this was tweeted as though, like, this was, like, saving education. Yes. (laughs) And I went to the page, I was like, where's the guide? Like, it's, like, 500 (laughs) words. Yeah. so I, I, I was expecting like some awesome thing. So maybe this is just the start of it, but like, <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's the start of something helpful. I, I don't, I mean, if you're a teacher and you see this and you go there, uh, and you're underwhelmed, join the club, but I, I like that they're at least thinking about it and starting to do something about it.
1: Yeah. Another, uh, education focused update here. Um. The popular AI editing and writing tool, Grammarly, is actually releasing new AI-powered features specifically for students. So this seems to be a suite of generative AI features that they're specifically targeting at students, including the ability to use the tool to brainstorm ideas, offer feedback on drafts of essays, provide revisions, and interestingly, generate citations from Grammarly's prompts. What do you think of Grammarly's move here to target students with this? When I first saw it, I was like, okay, so
0: schools think they're going to keep this out of the classrooms. And then you have <laughs> Grammarly with, like, here you go, students. Like, it's yeah. all these capabilities. It just, like, that was the first thing I thought, is it further validates, like, you can't ignore this and just do a policy against it that all AI is cheating. Like, Grammarly and other players are just going to push this at students. And so they're going to force a change in behavior, a change in learning, and we just have to solve for it. The other one I saw is Mm -hmm. u.com. They came out with a student version for like $6.99 a month or something like that. So u.com is also like a generative AI tool and search engine, I think. I haven't played around with it much. but um, So everyone's going to come for students and they're going to position their tools as helping students and they're going to position the future of education and schools are going to have no choice, but to like, accept this and kind of come along and solve for it and help these students prepare for the real world. And that was my first thought when I saw Grammarly is like, well, good for them for like going for it. Um, but it just put, it does put schools in a really tough spot to have to move very quickly and hopefully Grammarly steps up and helps them do it. Like that's the thing is I think OpenAI and Grammarly and Microsoft and Google, like they have to put billions into the educational system. Like They have to have commitments like we're seeing all this talk about responsible ai great put your money put your open ai 20 of your resources into solving for super alignment but how about we also put a couple billion into solving for the future of education and and that's where i would love to see this go is like not only are you building products for these students but let's go help the teachers and administrators solve for this and not in some like dispersed way like let's have collective efforts That helped move this forward this school year. Don't don't wait for the school year to be a train wreck and then solve next year. Like, do this now. You have the money. You have the clout to do it. Like, go do it.
1: So in an interview with the media outlet Semaphore, we saw the CEO of Runway, an AI company we talk about quite a bit. They make AI-powered video generation and creative tools. Their CEO says that AI could usher in a new, quote, golden era of cinema. So the CEO, Cristobal Valenzuela, said that, quote, new types of movies and a volume of content and stories that we might have never thought of before will start to appear. Now, this was interesting because also in this interview with all this optimism, he acknowledged, look, this is the disruption that AI might cause in the film industry, especially as we've got these ongoing writer and actor strikes that have ground Hollywood to a halt. You know, some of their concerns there are actually specifically around AI. So, Paul, we had both kind of seen this on our radar and kind of found it interesting. How are you balancing or viewing this balance between all these brand new creative possibilities that AI opens up, but also the vast concerns that some of these human creatives and people who do creativity for a living, so to speak, have about the technology?
0: Runway is a company we obviously have talked about quite a bit on this show. Um, Their CEO, Cristobal, doesn't, I haven't seen him as someone who hypes stuff. Like Mm -hmm. Runway, when they hype something, they deliver. Like their products, Gen 1, Gen 2, amazing. Their suite of AI magic tools are amazing. He does see around the corner on what this is going to do to the creative world, especially in, in video. And so when he's saying stuff like this, you have to assume that he has a pretty good idea of what's about to happen. And I think it just, to me, keeps coming back to education. Like we can't stop what's happening. The the tech, like Runway's Gen 2 went from four seconds of video from text to video to 18 seconds in like four months. Mm. So like, we're going to see this exponential curve in terms of the capabilities of this technology. And there is no signs of it stopping in text, audio, video, code, um, anything, images. So we have to figure out what it means and how it's going to disrupt different career paths, different industries. And we have to start solving for it. The solution is not to stop it from happening. It's not going to stop. So I don't know. I mean, when I see stuff like this, I just I always just feel this greater sense of urgency to do more, to educate people about what's happening and to try and find the
1: opportunities within it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, I think one big thing that really resonates with the work that we do is, you know, we say it often, it's not like we have the answer to everything in every industry. It's more giving you the tools to figure out answers on your own in right. your particular role or domain. Yep. All right. So last but not least, on September 13th, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is hosting an AI Insight Forum. And this includes some really heavy hitters in AI, including Elon Musk, Sam Altman of OpenAI, Mark Zuckerberg, Google CEO Sundar Pichai, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang, Bill Gates, and some other big AI names. Now, this is actually a closed-door bipartisan forum. And Schumer has previously hinted that it would, quote, lay down a new foundation for AI policy. Paul, how significant is this? What's going on here? So first I
0: would say, I mean, th- this room would be insane to be in and to like <laughs> be a all these the people wall. together. Yeah.
1: Send your meet, send Google meet there to yeah. your meeting assistant to listen yeah. in.
0: I, I wanted to go in person on this one, <laughs> um, but second, I think we, we have a responsibility to say the diversity of this list is horrendous. Like, yeah. And they got blasted for the initial list, I think. And then they went out and added a little bit of diversity to it. I know uh, Timika Brew, I saw, who was fired from Google, their ethics team back in 2021. I think I saw it on Twitter. She said, yeah, I got kind of a weird last minute invite to this. I assume it's just to balance the, the room. Uh, no, <laughs> like, that, no thanks. I'm not there as like a token, balance your list of people because you're getting blasted so i've seen some calls that this needs to get shut down before it happens They're because of the lack of diversity and the lack of um like what w- how that looks in the industry and then the reality of how it plays out like are these really the right people in the room if you're trying to talk about ethics and responsibility to have a bunch of ceos whose stake in this is like they don't want to slow the innovation down at all and it's going to be very one sided so there are some people they've added to the list recently that, um, I think we're meant to both balance the diversity of it, but also the perspectives within it. Um, I, I don't know how you do it. I mean, unfortunately the reality is a lot of these AI companies are, are run by, um, specific people and like, that's, who's going to be in the room, but they have to do more to, to balance it. Mm. So I think it's good that it's happening, that the idea of the event is happening. I think it's fascinating to get all of these people into a room. Uh, I think it will be fascinating of the efforts by foreign governments to also get in that room through
1: certain (laughs) (laughs) channels.
0: Um, yeah. So it, it, again, just like, there's going to be so many things like this where there's these, like what may end up being historic meetings. Um, when we look back on things five years from now and like what happened at that meeting that maybe we learn about later on, but I'm sure with this group, stuff's going to get talked about and leaked to different people and we'll hear some Hmm. stuff, but. Interesting. I hope that they either reschedule it and expand the diversity or find some ways to get better perspectives, more diverse perspectives in the room uh, for this first
1: go around. All right, Paul, that's another major act week in AI. Thanks for demystifying and decoding it for us. I appreciate it. I know the audience does. Thank you once again. Yeah, well, go
0: rest your voice, man. Three <laughs> webinars and a two podcasts in one yeah, week. It's a,
1: yeah, it's a lot. I know you had a
0: bunch of other stuff too. So thanks for all you're doing as well. All right, we'll talk to everyone uh, next week.